Central Coast Lending is an equal housing lender. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. NMLS number 328358. Introducing Mortgage Matters. This is a great time to go buy a house. This is when the real estate fortunes are made. A show dedicated to helping you navigate the challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were put into conservatorship in 2008 and continued to dominate the mortgage market. Now your host, the mortgage experts from Central Coast Lending. That's because the election has changed mortgage rates dramatically. Broadcasting from the KVEC News Talk 920 and FM 96.5 Studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? It's time for Mortgage Matters. All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Mortgage Matters. Whoop, whoop. Thanks for being with us. Thanks to the Motor Mouths for sticking around. Got an exciting live two hours here with you today. It's the old Jason and Dan duo. It's always the best. Which is usually turns out to be 80% me talking. <laughs> At least I'm cognizant of it, right? Right. It's all right. You got a lot of good stuff to say. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> you do you do well, Jason. I was accused this week of being dominant in conversation. Yeah. You know what? There's always like one thing that we hate about radio and radio. Yeah. No. Okay. Oh, the short answers. So, yeah, short answers, and then you know. <laughs> oh, let's just. Let's just clear the clear all the mics here for ten seconds and we've clear out a, silent sounds. We've had a couple yeah. guests on the show through <laughs> the years that have trouble with uh, open ended responses or just putting any color to it. Those those short responses are difficult to work yeah. with. Yeah. So and then there's me. Just <laughs> talk, talk, like, talk. At the other end of the spectrum, fill it all in. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know if we need to go over, I can cut like two minutes of an answer out from you, Jason. So. Mm. Mm. that makes me sad every word i say is relevant jim leave them in there i think we'll be okay yeah good just fine Uh, another fantastic week in the mortgage business staying plenty busy still lots of folks refinancing the purchase market is alive and well housing seems ever strong yeah yeah, we've had another week to process the Fed rate cut. Ho-hum. Not a lot of news there, right? No, it's been quiet. It's been a quiet week. A um. little bit of, uh, <laughs> what are those guys doing right now? Oh, yeah, the impeachment proceedings yeah, I guess going that on. Was the, I, I meant a quiet week economically. Sure. As far as economic news goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, political news has uh, remained... Heated up, I was going to say, remained as as unpredictable as ever, but it seems like maybe it's even gotten more unpredictable. I saw Speaker <laughs> Pelosi make the statement that they were making a formal impeachment investigation or hearing. What's the right word for it? Inquiry, Inquiry. I think, was the term I heard. Yeah, and, and actually, the, I kind of expected the markets to react a little more to that. Uh, Tuesday, the stock markets were down based on... But they were already down. They were are, down prior to that announcement. Sure. That announcement came after after but, close. But Wednesday, well into the green. So short memory. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing on Wednesday is talk. he's talking with Abe from uh, Japan, the president. So there was like an, uh, an easing of the tariffs with Japan as for, term as... For, uh, and 
in the form of agriculture, basically. So, like, sending more foods, more agricultural products over to Japan. So I'm wondering if maybe that kind of helped with that, too. I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of different things that go into it. I think some of it has to do with how likely you think this impeachment process will, you know, how likely that's actually going to be that that he actually gets impeached, right? I think what I read this week was that no president has ever been impeached. We had a resignation by Nixon, and then we had two other presidents where the process was started, but it wasn't confirmed by the Senate. So you have to remember that as far as that process goes, the House initiates the inquiry, they initiate the process, um, and then ultimately they they act as like a, a prosecutor and the chief justice of the Supreme Court acts as the presiding judge and the Senate um, as the jury. And then they ultimate the Senate ultimately would have to um, with a two thirds majority uh, agree to vote for impeachment. So two thirds majority would mean 20 Republicans all Democrats and all independents would have to vote in favor of impeachment in order for that to happen. So I don't even think that means he's actually impeached. They still have to go through a process after that. Right. Well, that would be at the conclusion of the process. Yeah. Well, Clinton was impeached, right? And the inquiry, exactly what happened on Tuesday, that inquiry process started. And then there was, I, I mean, as far as what I read, I, I wasn't really in touch with the, political goings on i was busy in school you know doing all that school has you doing um so it wasn't on the forefront of my mind at that time but yeah it sounds like it made it to the senate vote and it just wasn't the, the, the senate didn't and he it. was ultimately elected for a second term after all of that static so sure. we'll be on the wait and see what happens here yeah. um i think personally he's gonna, trump's gonna win a second term <laughs> That's just my I'm going to refrain from making an opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think the market's <laughs> reaction spoke to an unlikely uh, conclusion of this process with him being impeached. I yeah. think that's kind of what the markets said, in, at least in the initial reaction. Um, so anyway, that'll be something to continue to watch. Markets will react as more news comes out about that. Um, you know, similarly to when there's any kind of potential change in government, you see markets react accordingly. Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll just have to keep our eye on that. But as far as economic news goes, this past week it wasn't. It was kind of relatively quiet. You know, we're still digesting that Fed rate cut. Um, seems like the bond yields and mortgage rates have kind of found uh, found their new home here, at least for the short term. Um, yeah, which overall I'd say is slight improvement. Um, nothing to write home about, I would say. Uh, seems like the ten-year yield has grown comfortable around the one seven, one seven five range, which was about a quarter percent higher than what we saw at these recent lows. Um, and I think that's that would hold true for mortgage rates. Do you think mortgage rates are about a quarter up from the recent lows? Yeah, ish. Okay. Yeah, to the average scenario, I'd say so, which puts most people, I think, around the, you know, for a conforming loan with lots of equity outstanding credit on a stick-built home, you're probably looking in the three and three-quarters range is about where the the median rate is at this point. Mm-hmm. So, 
Um, still a, attractive for a lot of people to refi. Um, surprised at the people coming out of the woodwork. I am helping some people with a transaction right now that are saving about a thousand dollars a month with a refi. That's a lot of money. That is a ton. Yeah, some of these refis are oh saving a hundred to two hundred bucks a month. I would say the the no brainer ones are saving two to three hundred bucks a month. And uh, but also, it's started a conversation again about uh, people moving to fifteen year loans, looking at shorter amortization terms, and taking advantage of the lower rates to try to to get ahead of paying off the house. So lots of that conversation. And of course, I know we talk about this a lot on the show, but real estate values continue to increase um, most everywhere nationally. They, uh, granted, it's a slower rate of appreciation, but it means that people that bought a home one or two or three years ago are already experiencing a different reality in terms of mortgage insurance and maybe reduced or eliminated mortgage insurance by way of refinancing. We're doing a purchase transaction right now for a couple. Um, and it was interesting be- because, you know, you hear these appreciation numbers month over month, year over year, you get these numbers, but it's never evaluating the same home from one year to the next. It's kind of, it's, it's taking averages of of home sales or medians of home sales. So it's interesting. I I just happened to pick this particular loan to dive into. Um, It was almost three years to the month um, for the previous sale, for the the sellers, for when they bought the home. What part of the county? Um, It's in San Luis Obispo City in the Sarah Meadows. Ooh, um, good price appreciation in that neighborhood. And so what I saw was about... You know, it went from mid 500s to mid 700s on purchase price, which represented. I don't don't have the calculator with me right now, but I want to say it was knocking on the door of about 40 percent appreciation or 40 percent increase in value um, for that same home over a, over a three year period. That's why. And maybe I should do the math just to make sure I'm doing it right. Um. So yeah. I thought that, that was pretty interesting. I've seen some homes in that neighborhood that have experienced real appreciation. Yeah, I, maybe it was more like 30%. Yeah. 30% appreciation over three years. That's 10% that would suggest a year, about 10% a year. Which is much higher than the national average, which is, seems to be ringing in around about 4% a year. I guess that's the right way to do it. Eh, close enough. Yeah. It's good appreciation. That's the bottom line. Makes a, it creates the opportunity for people to be able, like, if you own one of those homes, um, you could sell your home, capture some equity, and buy a move up home. Yeah, it could be more like 35%. It's a lot. Yeah. So, anyway, it, it was kind of interesting to actually see, identify a single home and how its price had changed over a few year period of time, as opposed to just looking at the national averages, because the national averages for the last couple of years. Um, have been coming down. They've been well below 10% per year. Um, you know, in fact, more recently, we've seen year over year appreciation figures closer to like the five and 6%, you know, and sometimes you see them even below that. So you would kind of think that 
that might be what you could expect for your home. But in reality, you look at a home here in San Luis Obispo and it looks like maybe 10 to 12 is more accurate. If you've been in your home for two years, this this is, I guess, you know, if you bought your home two years ago with a minimum down type loan and had mortgage insurance, there's, there's a strong likelihood that you've maybe picked up that 20% equity position um, to be able to get rid of the mortgage insurance today. If that, you know, that one anecdotal home sale that I saw holds true for other areas. Um, And we've heard that from the realtor community too, that the national average is definitely under um, what, what you would find locally as far as appreciation figures. This week, we did get a read on the Case-Shiller Home Price Index and also the FHA, FHFA Home Price Index. I always have so much trouble with that acronym. I don't know why. It must just be a mental block. Um, July of 2019 saw an annual increase of 3.2% for home prices nationally, um, which matches the previous month's pace. So... Uh, it, it has, it seems like the pace of appreciation has been slowing over recent months. So seeing this one stick tight to the prior month, I guess was, was good news. Um, 15 of the 20 cities in the 20 city composite reported increases, um, both before and after seasonal adjustment, uh, adjustments are made. Um, so year over year home prices continue to gain, but they're at more modest rates than have been in years past. Of course, this is looking nationally. So you bring up a good example of something locally, reminding us that all real estate is local. And pockets, even within certain cities, there are pockets like that that are real bright spots where you see massive home price appreciation. Mm -hmm. Those one-off examples, though, can be a little bit misleading if that person maybe got a smoking deal on the on the purchase when they got it, maybe they bought five or 10% equity. And then over the three year period, you know, it could appreciate. And I don't know how old that particular development is. Is it about three years old? Would they be the original? It's a little bit older buyers. Maybe they were the second owner of that. I've had a couple transactions in there where it's going on to the third set of buyers now. Um, But a really desirable neighborhood in terms of being in slow. It's certainly sought after. Yeah. Um, we, I have been working with a couple of different families that have kind of targeted that neighborhood. And, um, I've seen, uh, in fact, one of them makes me wonder if it might be the specific transaction that you're talking about where these guys saw a house in there and, Thought it was at the high end of the price point, made an offer at it, ultimately didn't win. And then a couple weeks later on the same street, another house came on uh, that was much better priced, um, which still represented a pretty huge gain from the prior owner that had purchased the home about three years ago. So, um, you know, the, each individual property obviously has a different story to tell. Uh, one of the couples that I met with last week was talking about how they lived in a community in Arroyo Grande, a gated community, where there wasn't a lot of turnover, but it but it was a a neighborhood of um, a gated community, and the people that lived in the neighborhood were an older demographic, so mm-hmm. mostly retired, and so they said that their property values could fluctuate within their gate um, pretty radically because oftentimes the kids would. You know, when the parents would pass away, the kids would sell the house rapidly to try to, you mm. know, just get money now. 
and that those prices they thought somehow represented the bottom end of the market. I don't feel like that's probably very normal though, because most of the time the statistics of these things tell the story, right? We, we have a pretty good idea of what price per square foot is in most places. And I would venture to say there's pretty little deviation from that formula. Yeah. There's some communities I'm thinking of both, you know, my hometown of Sacramento and even here in San Luis Obispo city, there's some communities where they have that similar situation where there's very little turnover. There's almost never a home for sale in that particular neighborhood, you know, maybe like a San Luis drive in San Luis Obispo or, you know, in my hometown, Sacramento, there's an area called the forties, the fab forties. Um, and the, there's just, it's not often that there's just not a lot of inventory in those neighborhoods. And so you almost have like a waiting list type of sure. thing. And so realtor, I mean, yeah, realtors just, they have their list to call down. Hey, this one is coming up, but it's not hit the market yet. Who's interested? And you can almost, as a seller, call out your price, um, you know, within reason. But, sure. but yeah, there's definitely, you know, each neighborhood is, is unique and that's what makes real estate uh, special. And, it, you know, you can take the national numbers and even state numbers for what they're worth. And they're, it's good information to have when making decisions, but it doesn't always apply in every neighborhood. That's right. Um, couple bright spots in this case, Schiller Home Price Index. Uh, Phoenix led the nation with a 5.8% year-over-year. Phoenix has been on a tear for quite a while. They've been grabbing headlines there. Followed by Las Vegas, which continues to have hot appreciation, 4.7%. Um, that's Those are pretty big numbers. You remember a decade ago on this show when we talked about buying opportunities in Las Vegas, how cheap it was. Yeah. That market was absolutely hammered after the recession. And Las Vegas was a dog for quite a while. You know, it took a while for that market to rebound because, and you remember those two markets in particular, uh, the previous company we worked for pre recession uh, was approved in both Nevada and Arizona to do loans. So we saw loans in both of those States and there was massive amounts of building going on. So oh, yeah. there, was, there was a lot of inventory to absorb, um, both due to just the massive amount of building as well as what occurred through the recession. Um, so it took a little longer for those markets to rebound. The FHA, FHFA Home Price Index um, came out with the second smallest annual gain in a four-year run. Um, they were at... 5% um, year over year for the month of July. And this one's interesting because this is all taken into consideration, all appraisals that go into the system there. Um, they showed that the 12-month price changes were all positive in the nation's nine census divisions. Um, the mid-Atlantic region posting the smallest gain of 3.6%. Mountain region leading the charge was 7.6% uh, appreciation. Um, kind of wild. Home prices are still going up. And so you mentioned, I mean, where this... For most people where this makes the biggest splash is those recent home buyers. If you bought a house in the last couple of years, like you mentioned, there could be an opportunity to get rid of your mortgage insurance altogether. 
Um, I always like to remind people that mortgage insurance is based on coverage rates. So when you have 5% or less equity, you're going to be in the highest coverage rate, which is going to lead to the highest premiums. If you have 10% equity, a little bit lower premium, 15% equity, even less premium. Of course, there's no requirement for mortgage insurance when you have 20% equity. So sometimes it's worth looking at, can you just make it down a tier? If you could get the same or better interest rate, lower your mortgage interest rate tier, then you could be saving some real money. And of course, this conversation isn't complete without reminding everybody that FHA loans have typically life of loan mortgage insurance, which means you're looking for an opportunity to get out of your FHA loan into a conventional loan. And there's two real big benefits there. I mean, number one, you can get yourself, even if you don't have the full 20% equity, you can get yourself into a conventional loan where your mortgage insurance does have an expiration date on it. But then also, if you're within the first three years, you can actually get a prorated refund of your upfront mortgage insurance premium. Um, it, it goes down each month as you get closer to three years. After three years, you have no entitlement to refund of that initial mortgage premium. So um, sometimes you can get yourself a nice little refund based on that initial premium, move over into the conventional world, uh, figure that out. Now, because FHA loans have life of loan mortgage insurance, and generally that's going to be a factor of 0.85%, that's directly equal to interest. So the trick here is look at your FHA interest rate, which is generally going to be lower than your conventional interest rate, and just add the 0.85% mortgage insurance factor to your actual note rate. So let's say that you're at four and a quarter. If you add the 0.85%, now you're over 4% is 5%. what you're, or over 5% for your true interest rate cost. So, and then compare that to today's conventional rates. Yeah, which we've described are in the high threes for most borrowers. And you can get yourself into a mortgage insurance. 0.85% on FHA represents the higher end of monthly mortgage insurance. Most conventional loans are going to be at a third or a half a percent rate. So, but again, also they have an expiration date on them. So what you're going to be doing is looking at your new conventional interest rate plus your mortgage insurance rate, comparing that to what you have with your FHA loan. Uh, can make a, a pretty substantial difference in a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So if you have an FHA loan, uh, you should definitely call to take a look at what that um, what your options are in terms of getting out of there. A lot of people got those FHA loans with the idea that they were going to get out of them when they could. And this recent dip in rates is kind of dollars from heaven. Nobody anticipated this last year. We were led to believe that interest rates were going to continue an upward path throughout 2019 and 2020. So the fact that these rates have dropped, it opens this window of opportunity for people that didn't previously exist. Mm -hmm. So if you have an FHA loan, call us. Uh, one phone number rings all of our offices. It's 805-543-LOAN. So if you want to explore that, give us a call at 805-543-5626. We're going to take the first commercial break here of the hour, and we'll be back in just a minute with more Mortgage Matters.
Welcome back. We're still here. You're still here. We're all still here. We're still here. Talking about housing and the strength of housing. Uh, we got some data to talk about this week of um, sales of new, newly constructed single-family homes. Um, had a great month in August. Uh, new home sales increased 7.1% to a seasonally adjusted rate of 713,000 units last month. Um, this surge in activity is is uh, largely pointed to people taking advantage of lower interest rates. Yeah. Um, the prior month was less than expected, and the headlines there were that the uh, this drag on the economy and uh, rah, rah, running to the end of the cycle was causing people to become disinterested in new home sales. So it's interesting to see that uh, it's a good reminder that you can't ever pinpoint one specific month worth of data and try to draw bigger conclusions from it. These things, uh, and also this is why they seasonally adjust it to some point too. Um, Yeah, the annualized rate of New home units that sold in July was 666,000. It jumped to 713,000, which was just shy of a 12-year high. And when you compare August year over year, new home sales were up 18%. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, the Uh, median home price for new homes rose to 328,400, which is a gain of about 2.2% 2.2% every year. Don't you wish you could buy a new home <laughs> for here? $320,000? Yeah, 328 yeah. grand, move right in. Let's do it. It always blows me away when I watch those home renovation shows or like the ones where the you know they're buying these properties like I watched one in Galveston, yeah. you know, the other day. I think it's beachfront property for like $350,000, four bedroom, oh, yeah. two bathroom. What they're not showing you is they got mosquitoes the size of birds there. Well, and they <laughs> <laughs> the humidity and you know everything else that goes into it but yeah that those shows are hard for me to watch too because it's always like a he's a stamp collector mm-hmm. and she <laughs> works part-time at the pta as a volunteer and their budget is a million dollars and i'm like what are you yeah, talking exactly. about and how are you qualifying for a loan mm-hmm. or he started his own business in january and it's been going pretty well so he's ready to buy a house uh, guys, you need two years of self-employment history to qualify for a loan. So how on earth are you pulling this off? It makes me wonder if those television shows have like private funding sources and that's your perk for participating in the program. Yeah. Well, you know, and I also noticed too, and they never brought it up on the show, of course, was like one of the show, one of the homes that they were showing, they showed the exterior shot of it and you could see like the, um, swamp cooler on the outside of the house was like rusted mm-hmm. and also the support beam that hold it up to the second floor was pretty well toast. And so I'm like, Hmm, there's another $20,000 at least right there. I'm out of touch <laughs> with how much a swamp cooler costs. But, but, uh, <laughs> well, I know that I know that a refrigeration costs about 30, I think. So I think a swamp cooler, but you know, the fact that the matter was, it's like, there's an immediate fix right there. I would think. Yeah. And it's not going to be cheap, I don't think. So, you know, they never point that thing out. The rest of this new home sales conversation, a couple more things that I think are interesting. Um, There are 326,000 new homes on the market last month in the nation. Um, 
I feel like that's a fair amount of new homes to be on the market. Um, to, to put it into context a little bit, um, at the absorption rate for the month of August, it put us at five and a half months worth of inventory. And again, pointing to, so we see that the, the home, the median home price increased about 2.2% for new home nationally, Mm -hmm. which is, um, probably lower than the range of home price appreciation that we're used to. Um, in a healthy market, it's generally described as three to 5%. 2.2 is barely keeping up with inflation, right? Um, but then also, um, just the fact of inventory. I mean, usually we think three to six months worth of inventory in the housing market is a reasonable amount of inventory to be soaked up by the consumer. Inventory down from the prior month ever so slightly. Um, it was 5.9 months in July, 5.5 in August. And the last little bit of this that I found interesting is that 63% of those homes that sold um, in the month of August were under construction at the time of transaction. So this is people that are still forward-looking, um, believing that the housing market's a good bet and it's time to hop in and buy a house that's not even yet done. Yeah. Yeah, it's it kind of points to a balanced market there. You know, the both the appreciation figures as well as the months of supply. You know, this is this is a market that I don't feel like we've experienced a lot of in the last uh, decade. Or, Wasn't it or funny? More. <laughs> I mean, nationally, we've been talking about the economy that there the economy seems pretty strong, yet the feds are cutting rates, and there's there's kind of turmoil that people are consternating, but. The housing market, kind of similarly, people talk about the the decline in the appreciation rate and that there's trouble on the horizon, um, but really it feels like it's a normal market, doesn't yeah. it? We I mean, have- supply and demand and inventory and these things all feel like they're in balance, or if anything, still at, at kind of a, a demand side imbalance, which of course is leading to rising prices. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to make too much uh, conversation there that the housing market isn't on firm footing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. It feels, and, and just, you know, the numbers are, are speaking to that. And then just the feeling that you get um, in various communities, it feels that way as well. Yeah. So you want to talk sentiment a little bit. Um, <laughs> housing starts, which are breaking ground on new projects, popped up 12.3% to an annual adjusted rate of 1.364 million. Hmm. That means that the path, if the month, Month after month, just held steady. We're doing almost uh, 1.4 million of new homes um, going by the starts numbers, hmm. which is pretty impressive. That takes us back into those uh, pre-recession numbers, the early 2000s, where we saw 1.4, 1.5, 1.6 million. I think 1.6 million was about the high watermark of new homes being constructed in the U.S. Um, at an annualized rate. So. Housing starts a bright spot, and um, you know we we kind of drill into this from time to time. You've got uh, from the time that a house is planned, kind of daydreamed up until the day the shovel hits the dirt can be years on end. So this is a good indicator that um, starts are strong, which is telling us that the the builders believe in the home buying community in the housing market in general. Um, they also revised, and by the way, that starts number is the highest level since June of 2000. 
So it did eclipse somewhere in 2006, right? We know there was a strong run-up. I mean, even in Slow County, we were seeing lots of construction that was happening sure. relative to what we usually do. Um, and you're seeing a lot of that building activity in most of the communities here. Just driving down this morning from North County to to um, you know be at the radio station here, you see there's that project off, I guess it would be the west side of 101. I don't know if it's north of Tascadero or Templeton, but there's some grading going on for residential builds there. Um, I decided to take the Marsh Street exit, driving up Marsh. There's a new, uh, looks like maybe a three-story um, residential project, um, you know, kind of few blocks up from the from the off-ramp there mm-hmm. on Marsh Street. So more, you know, the, a lot of that Different styles of building, obviously, depending on the communities, but you've got things going on everywhere. You get out into the, I guess it's the east side of San Luis Obispo out there, and you've got the Rigetti Ranch and various projects there. So there's lots going on. You've got the Delidio stuff going that's underneath. Which is massive, by the way. Every time I drive by, I'm shocked. The removal of those trees. Now, were those cypress trees, those huge pine needle-looking trees that were all along the side of Los Osos Valley Road there? No, that's Madonna. Sorry. Madonna. Madonna. But just the absence of those and all the grading that's happening is like, man, that that whole area feels like it's in major flux. Well, and of course, the traffic is already bad enough on Madonna anyway. And now you're going to put all those houses in. And at some point, we'll get Prado Road. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's part of it, right? In order to... I recall that it was like an exaction being made on every previous proposal. Mm -hmm. And so I just assumed that it was part of this. I don't know that I'm confident that I know they were putting in, but I I believe that it is part of it. Yeah. Um, Just hopefully it it gets done before the project gets done because it's going to be a lot of extra traffic. But but there's a lot of change for sure. So in addition to July being one of the largest starts, housing starts numbers that we've had since 2007, um, they also revised... Uh, the prior month higher, and starts have increased 6.6% year over year. So housing starts are looking very good. We also have more data here to talk about um, existing home sales came out. So this is your previously lived-in home. Um, the The sales rate of existing homes increased 1.3% um, to a, an annual average of about $5.49 million which exceeded the forecast, represents a 17-month high. Um, It means people are feeling comfortable, at least slightly more comfortable, selling their home. I think those numbers fall hand-in-hand, right? Those, Unless those people are giving up needing a place to live, um, they're selling their house because they're either buying another existing home or they're buying a new home, right? Sure. Um, The median home price for... Um, existing home sales increased 4.7% from last year. Total inventory on the market decreased 2.5% year over year to 1.86 million. So the existing home sales actually still looking strong. Uh, more people transacting in the month, less on the year over year, but home prices going up about 4.7% within the existing home sales category. So, um, Still looking pretty strong there. Yeah, all in all, all I mean, all the housing numbers that came out here in the last week and a half or so have looked very solid. Um, they point to a, a stable market, a market that's moving more in balance than it has in quite some time. 
um, which you know I I think is a good thing. Yeah, it's it's slowing down from the heated market that we've ex- experienced for the last seven or eight years, but you know that's not going to go on forever. I don't think it should go on forever. It's not a it good can't. thing. And so you know, as we slowly just you know, it's a nice soft landing into this um, balanced normal market. I think that's a good thing, and I'm I'm happy about how we are experiencing this. What feels like a soft landing right now. Yeah, and wage growth is not keeping up with home price appreciation, which means that it it continues to put the squeeze on that first time home buyer, right? The people that need to buy a house that don't yet own a house, um, there we need we you know, in an ideal world, I think as the cycle goes, you want to see that home price appreciation slow down to a point where it gives opportunity for some of the next generation to hop in the pool. Mm-hmm. You know, they need to experience advancements at work uh, and then also just raises and, and wage growth to be able to to get into the market. So we're seeing that. Uh, it feels weird to say that we're seeing that gap narrow a little bit, but still... We were talking about the appreciation, especially here. It seems like the edges of the nation always exacerbate the problem here. But you've got, you know, four percent appreciation on the home price. I mean, that's the conservative number here on the West Coast. But you're talking about appreciation of homes that are a median value of five hundred thousand or so, right? You're not getting 4% wage growth on 500,000 wages. Right. So if your wages, if you're really crushing it and you're doing really good making $100,000 a year, 4% wage growth isn't even a scratch the surface of what it needs to keep up with the home price appreciation of 4% on 500 grand. Mm-hmm. Or here in Slow County, even more, right? So it's it's not all great news uh, for that first-time home buyer, but it feels a little bit healthier Um Moving in the healthier direction, I think. Remember those days of home price appreciation in the double digits? That was uh, obviously unsustainable. So a little bit of reprieve from that's a good thing. How much time we got before this big break coming up? Well, we can take it any time now, actually. All right. We're pretty well, let's much do on it. time. It sounds like a good time to switch gears here. So we're going to take commercial break. Be out for a couple minutes here to uh, take some time to... Thank the sponsors that helped make the show possible. We'll be back in just a minute with more Mortgage Matters. We're talking about the West Coast uh, real estate conundrum here, which is ever appreciating home prices that are outpacing uh, wage growth and making it tough for somebody to hop into the market here that's not ready. Um, so seems like a natural um, segue here to talk to you about. This is not as bad as it gets, you guys. <laughs> um, this last week in the news uh, makes the... Uh, 
the introduction and and welcome to market four billion dollars worth of luxury apartment condo style in the world's tallest residential building now which occupies a modest little footprint in manhattan yeah we were talking about that on the break it's just ugh. west 57th street in manhattan is now selling um the building stands 1,550 feet tall, which is about a third of a mile. Uh, I'm going to venture to say that the average listener here on the show, unfortunately, is going to struggle to run a third of a mile. It's a pretty good little run if you're not in shape. This is a tall building. Um, made me wonder, I was watching this, I kind of started to get sweaty palms. Can you live there? Um now, let's not let's not jump into the price of what it takes to buy one of these units here in Manhattan, but can you live there? Can you live a hundred and there's a hundred and thirty-one floors mm-hmm. in this That's building. Crazy. Can you live up there? Can you live up that high? It's moving. It's definitely it's swaying, moving. it's moving. Yeah. It scares me. Like I said, I got sweaty palms to think about it. And then I thought, man, well, I guess if you live in Manhattan, you're used to living in something high, high like rises, that anyway. Yeah. You're used to living yeah. with yeah. an elevator. Um, but a lot of the building, a lot of the residential buildings, while they are high rises, they're dwarfed in comparison to so many of the other buildings. So oftentimes you're you're just looking out at another wall of another building, you know, out of your window. This thing is so high that if you're on some of those upper stories, you just have these panoramic views. You feel like you're just you're up there with nothing around you. That's a fantastic view. <laughs> yeah. If you yeah, like but the if view. you're swaying to the music, so to speak, I'm not so sure I'm comfortable with that. It's pretty crazy. If the height alone doesn't make your palms sweaty, let's talk about uh, what it looks like to buy one of these. Mm-hmm. Um the pricing for the current available units in the Central Park Tower starts at $6.9 million. Mm. So on these 131 floors of residential uh, tower here, there are 179 apartments, which mm. all together, yeah, they said they'll start at just under $7 million for a two-bedroom apartment, and then... They're thinking that the top penthouse will be as much as nine figures. That's a, oh, that's a hundred plus million dollars there, people. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, and then plus, not to mention you probably have an HOA. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for <laughs> so, sure. So you're gonna have you're gonna spend what? How much how many millions? And then you have to pay another fee every month to live there. I always look at this stuff and I like to <laughs> I like to try to bring it down into things that I can understand. Um, great question. How much is the HOA? I mean, the window washer budget on this building has got to be higher than uh, yeah. any of us could even afford to want to yeah. try to wrap our head around. Exactly. So let's just suggest here that you buy that first unit for $6.9 million. Um, oh, and, and then- I'm going to smooth over some reality here for you and, and just Let's just suggest that 5% down was even attainable, which it is not. Um, your 5% down payment on uh, $6.9 million is only three hundred and forty-five grand. So I feel like some people can cough that up. We see transactions here where people put $350,000 down on a house. 
But let's just say that you could get one for 5% down. Let's also just say that you could get the conforming interest rate of 3.75% today. Um, the <laughs> principal and interest only on the mortgage here per month is $30,357. Uh, 30 what? 30,000. I'm going to round it up to 31,000. Yeah, over there. Not to mention your $7,000 a month tax bill or whatever it's going to be. Yeah, I don't know what the New York tax rate is. I can only assume it's similar to California. California enjoys one of the lower property tax rates of the states that have property taxes, right? So, yeah, you're going to be about cool 7 Gs in in property taxes per month. Nice $38,000. Well, here's another thing, too. How many floors, I mean, does it have a parking garage? How many floor downs, floors you down does it have? You don't get to have a car there. And no way. Yeah. The the car, the parking spot's probably sold for an extra $3 million with the unit, you know, if you can afford to pony up. That's usually how those things go out yeah, there. Yeah, so. But, so, okay, so let's just say that you're in a good spot. You're you're killing it. Financially, yeah. you're doing really good. Maybe work on Wall Street, whatever. So, you know, your housing should make up roughly about a third of your income monthly. So you need to be making about $100,000 a month in order to be able to afford the housing here. So that means that you're pulling down a cool, you know, $1.2, $1.5 million a year um, to be able to even qualify this. And then if that doesn't give you anxiety, um, think about this. I mean, you and I have had these conversations about our mortgage payments, right? Which feels pretty modest compared to this. (laughs) Of course. Um, (laughs) But you need to be able to look out 30 years and realize that you're going to be at this income level and operating at this this level of stress and cash flow for a 30-year period. Uh, You've got to have some significant money. So I'm guessing that this um, turns out to be a billionaire's tower. Oh, Where sure. the people that are buying these are not the people that are making a couple million bucks a year working on Wall Street, which you could, right? If you were a, a real high-level trader or a hedge fund manager, like you, there's there's ways that you're earning that kind of money out there in the economic capital of the world. Sure, um, but this has got to be left for um, the elite of the elite. And I also wonder, when I was looking at this too, I wonder how many of these are even going to be purchased by American citizens? You know, when you go back and look at some of the, oh, I was reading what Ed McMahon's mansion down in Santa Barbara or whatever, it may not have been Ed McMahon, but it was somebody uber rich was selling this mansion and the buyers were like um, Asian dignitaries that that came from just generational wealth and were able to buy California real estate just for premium, you know, pretty crazy. So much money. So I wonder how much of this is even actually going to end up owned by American folks. Um, Other part of this that just blows my mind is the luxury housing market of New York has been a little bit sluggish. It's one of the things that, you know, people that say, well, this is the leading indicator of housing slowdown is things like what's going on in New York, what's going on in San Francisco, looking at some of the most extreme because that's where the wealthiest of people are choosing or not to make these investments. You shared last week that in in the current economic environment that CEOs are a little bit uncertain about the future. So the kind of people that are buying these kinds of properties are are pretty in tune with the bigger business sense. So they're releasing – 
about $4 billion worth of luxury high-end real estate into a market that is arguably already sluggish at that top end. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe these people buy it because, hey, that this is your address, right? To your point, uh, by one estimate, one in four new condos built in Manhattan since 2013 remain unsold and unsold, empty. Unsold, sitting there. Yeah, and they're they're expecting... About half of the sales for this project in particular to be uh, American or English speakers, and um, and then the other half will be overseas buyers. If you're part of the investment firm that funded this project, you have to have some real fear that <laughs> the timing... Um, I didn't see when this thing broke ground, but it had to have been a nice long haul to get this ready to yeah. market. All right, guys, we're running into the top of the hour commercial break, which means you're about a five-minute break here. Um, Take some time out to get some fresh coffee. Go uh, do whatever you need to do to get yourself lined up for a whole another hour of Mortgage Matters. We're going to grab coffee and try to pep this second hour up a little bit. So uh, see you back here in a few minutes with more Mortgage Matters. Robert Hunter was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead, passed away this week, 79. Sorry Sorry about that. That was a bummer. Cool thing, though, about uh, kind of being immortalized here with uh, leaving your works of art for everybody forever. That's for sure. It's a pretty broad impact. And I have to say, Jason, you've kind of got me more interested in the Grateful Dead than Uh, I was before. So They're the best. Yeah, they are good. Yeah, I think Dan gets into him a little bit more. I've seen Dan Dan sing some Grateful Dead. (laughs) A little tune here or there. He likes the Dead in the Dark. (laughs) I don't think he'll still be able to tour or anything at all. Oh, yeah, Yeah. for sure. The current current front man for the Dead is John Mayer. And Hmm. he rips. If you haven't listened to any Dead and Company, that's the new... Wow. It's the it's the bass player from yeah. uh, Allman Brothers' most recent. Well, I guess O'Teal, and then John Mayer's the front man, and they're cool. super good. John Mayer's amazing music. Oh, John Mayer is amazing. Yeah, yes, yeah. super cool. Cool. Um, I got a good chuckle this week looking at some Zillow stuff. Can we pick on Zillow for a minute? <laughs> we always do. When was the last <laughs> time you looked your home value up in Zillow? You ever do it? I don't look up mine so much as I look up other people's as we're putting loan files together. Yeah, and sometimes <laughs> sometimes they can be a help, and sometimes you can look at them and go, "What?" Yeah, I laugh. There was a there was a news piece this week about Zillow, um, and you know Zillow owns some real estate, right? They've oh, yeah. they've ventured their way into that business. Um, so Zillow owns a house that they listed for sale, and the sales price. Um, 
was much different from the Zestimate. <laughs> the <laughs> Zestimate funny. was inaccurate, which is just irony. On their I think own property. People oh. in the industry, realtors in specific, struggle with this the most because um, for the average consumer, it's hard for you to have a good idea of what your home is worth unless you live in a tract where all the neighbors, like if you live in a condo, and all the neighbors' homes that have sold in the recent months or years, you've sort of tracked what they sell for, then you can have some idea of what your house is worth. But for those that live in the more eclectic and ununiform neighborhoods where it's one-off construction of you know different homes that, yeah, they're going to fit a similar design style, but you can find a 1,500-square-foot house on the same block as a 3,000-square-foot house, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just it's interesting to see what the spread is and so zillow just loses reliability in those types of neighborhoods which is largely what is around here yeah so anyways i saw this and i thought that's kind of funny the the zillow's estimate they they listed their house for oh about 10 percent more than what this estimate was um i i also saw an article so this was a little well is that what it ended up selling for or is that just the list price um, I don't think it's sold yet. Okay. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. But um, I saw another article that was a little bit older. This is a couple years older now, but interestingly enough, the, and I don't even know if Spencer Raskoff is still the CEO of Zillow. Not sure. You have to look it up. Um, but anyways, um, he sold his house. And listed it for forty percent less than the Zestimate. <laughs> Pretty hilarious, right? The pull up the Zestimate. It says your house is worth a million bucks, and then you go to sell it and have to sell it for six hundred grand. Hmm. Whoops. Yeah, Zillow. I mean, I think they do a reasonable job of trying to digest the data. We had back in my active underwriting years, we used different software that attempted to do the same thing, um, which is ultimately look at public records. So sort of, I, I would describe it to people this way is picture your, uh, like an aerial map of your house in its neighborhood. Right. And maybe the scale of the map goes out five miles, but so your, your home is going to be the epicenter, right? We're going to stick a pin in your home. And then what we're going to do is start doing concentric circles spiraling out yeah around your house as we go out 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 and the way that these things work is they put the most confidence in the homes that are closest to the epicenter right to your home and they run public records for closed transactions that are going to be you know in in like i said in a neighborhood like dove creek or um you know bella montana it's Sierra Meadows, any one of these where you could say, okay, well, these houses are relatively similar to one another. If it can catch two or three comparable homes within the first concentric ring, it can have a pretty high confidence that the value that what it's anticipating there is relatively accurate. But then let's move, take that same thing down and say, okay, well, let's look at Shell Beach, for example. Mm The data is difficult there because in Shell Beach, you only get kind of half the data of the concentric rings because the other half is the ocean, right? Then you've got this hillside. So you're going to have pretty limited homes in proximity to sell there. But one thing we know about Shell Beach, you can have an 800-square-foot house that's worth a million dollars. 
And next door to it, you could have a 2,500 square foot house that's worth $2 million. So yeah. the way that these types of software like Zillow would work was say, okay, well, these are vo- both very close. And all it really knows how to do is add up the price per square foot and then kick out a number. But one of the things we know about real estate valuation in general is that the ends of the curve are extreme. In other words, smaller houses end up with a much higher price per square foot than the median home would where, you know, it's representative of the average, you know, a 1500 square foot or a 2000 square foot house is going to fall well into a norm. And so then if there happens to be a thousand square foot house in that neighborhood or a 3000 square foot house in that neighborhood, they're going to, they're at the lower end, those smaller houses are going to have a a higher price per square foot as it's buoyed up towards that average. Whereas the 3000 square foot house is going to have some downward pressure on it because the, the average price per square foot is based on a smaller home. I a think, big, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. No, yeah. go ahead. I think uh, a good estimate. Well, a good thing. And Shelby, you just brought that up and we've used this before. You've got the Chapman estate in Shelby Beach, Yeah. and then da- down and over, a couple of houses to somebody's house. Right. And, and it, 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 but it's a nice house. Yeah. But you've got something that is really an estate. And then just down the street, you have yeah. a three bedroom house. And I don't think, you know, you know, for the sake of this discussion that the Chapman house really has a comparable property. No. Um, whereas like what you're talking about, you're, you're talking about maybe homes that have the same lot size, yeah. but a different structure on it. And so part of the difference in price per square foot measurement is, the fact that the land itself has a value sure. regardless of what's on it. And if they're both on, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 square foot lots, whatever it may be, that land underlying whatever property still has a value and will obviously have a greater impact on the smaller house than it would on the larger house. Um, you know, some of those eclectic neighborhoods, I know like when I'm trying to determine a value of a home, the first thing I'll do is I'll go to Google and I'll just type in the address. Sure. And, you know, within the first five hits or so, you're going to find Zillow, Realtor.com, Redfin. I think those are probably the three popular ones that you'll find. And each of those will attempt to approximate a value. And so in, in neighborhoods that are, you know... Homogenous. Very homogenous, you know, very conform, very... A lot of similar homes all around. Um, you'll find the values on all three of those websites to be very much in line. When you get into those um, those you know larger parcels or just you know some of the the more rural areas of the county or just where there's just vastly different homes from one lot to the next, you'll find. I mean, I've I've seen where one site will have the home valued at five hundred thousand, another will have it valued at eight hundred thousand, and then one's at six fifty, and you're like, well, I which one's right? Yeah. Do you just go in the middle? I don't know if that's right. I was talking to a real estate agent this week about estimating value. She called and said she listens to the show, and said that she had a listing. Um, which I don't know. I mean, she knows she listens to the show, respects our opinions, and understands kind of how we work. We talk about things like this, right? Mm-hmm. And so she she ended up asking me the sixty four thousand dollar question. You know, I have this listing, and what do you think is a good price per square foot? And so I started sharing with her is that you know I would one of the things that I do, and there's there's lots of public record information out there. I like. Um, 
just by nature of the relationship that we've had with with Wes and Patterson, which is now Compass, but um, they ha- he has one site that all of their agents have. It's called like Solds and Stats, and you got to have a login for it. But um, they give the logins out readily. Uh, the login I think is the same for everybody. I probably shouldn't say it over the air, but. Anyways, one of the reports that I can pull up is the most recent 30 days solds. And you can break that down just by city. And I would venture to say that, by and large, this is a reasonable approach even by city. Is if you looked at what's sold in Morro Bay, for example, in the last 30 days. Well, that might only be six or so homes. So it's going to be more difficult then if you go look at what sold in the last 30 days in Atascadero, there's 50 homes. So you're going to you're gonna have to look at the data set a little bit. And that's why I think estimating value out in the coastal area where it's lighter volume is a lot harder to do. Mm-hmm. But like in Atascadero, for example, I'll take and say, okay, well, I'm trying to figure out what this house is worth. It's a 2,000 square foot, three bed, two bath, you know, pretty, pretty run of the mill home in Atascadero. And... I'll go pull up the list of the most recent 30 days solds and I'll sort it by square footage. And I'll say, if I was evaluating an appraisal, um, which by the way, when I was trained to evaluate appraisals, they said, imagine that a realtor that um, you're, you're still, they're trying to earn your trust, right? They've got you in their car and they're going to drive you to four different houses today. The four different houses that they take you to, you should understand why you're going to these four houses, right? If they take you to a one-bedroom, one-bath, 800-square-foot house, and they drop you to the next house, which is a 3-2, 2,000-square-foot house, and they take you to the next house, which is a five-bedroom, five-bathroom, 5,000-square-foot house, you'd be like, this person's not very bright. Um, so each one of the four homes they drive you to, it should be pretty clear even when you pull up. Okay, this looks similar to the other houses. So, um, and then additionally, the specs of the home should be relatively similar, right? Two thousand square foot house. I would, I would squint and kind of cock my head at a realtor that took me to a fourteen hundred square foot house, or maybe even a fifteen hundred square foot house. Likewise, if they took me to a three thousand square foot house. So, I would say, well. For me as a consumer, I'm going to probably consider anything from 1,600 square feet. If 2,000 is kind of what I think I need, I'm going to consider 1,600 square feet, which is going to be the smaller size, right? I'm not going to have a dining room in that house. The extra square footage is going to be used in the bedroom. I'm not going to have a dining room. Probably going to have a smaller living room and slightly smaller bedrooms. You get the same bedroom count out of a 2,000 square foot house. You're probably going to have a dining room, maybe slightly larger bedrooms. And then likewise, at the upper end, I would think probably a 2,400-square-foot house, probably going to be the top end of what I'm going to consider comparable. So point is, I'd organize that list of 30 solds by last 30 days solds, and I would just delete out everything, every record in there that was a home greater than 2,400 square feet and any that are less than 1,600. And then I would go look at the next thing as outliers is generally going to be the year that it was built right? A brand new home is going to have a different value than a home that's built in 1959. That's just the facts. It may not be hugely different, but I'm looking for something that seems like a clear outlier. And then, so once I feel like I've driven it down to, these are all similar age and similar priced homes. I'm not even really taking into consideration um, location. I'm just looking at price per square foot. Then I'm looking at, um, you know, the age that it was built, and the size. 
So then I'll just add up all of the square footage and average it. Okay. So my total average in this I'm expecting is going to come out around 2000, right? That's what I tried to, to pinpoint. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also going to take the, the total sales price and add them all the way up and just, you know, there's 20 properties. I'm going to take the total sales price, divide by 20. It's handy in this website if you just copy everything, throw it into Excel, and now you can manipulate the numbers. So then I can make the next formulas just divide now the average square footage of the home by the average sales price for the total group of homes, hmm. which is going to be smoothing out the upper and lower end. So now I can say, okay, from now what I can tell, the houses that are in this price range for me and a Tascadero that feel somewhat similar are $325 per square foot. Um, so if I'm sitting with a client that says, I really have no idea what my house is worth whatsoever, then I'd say, okay, well, how many square feet is your house and what year is it built? And I'll check Zillow and I'll check a couple of other public record sources to make sure that the square footage that they believe they have is really what's true. Sometimes there's unpermitted additions or conversions that won't be valued. It's important to know that. Um, but then I'll just go back and then I can go back. So you have an 1800 square foot house. In a task that I'm going to accept is $325 square feet. So I do 1800 times 325. That gives me the price. And now I know I'm within a range of that. And so now we can start to say, well, but I've got, um, I've got a great view or I've got a, a, a better lot size. I've got a desirable location, whatever these things are that are going to start to scooch you up in terms of price per square feet, but you could get dangerously close to what the appraisal is going to come in by just using those tools that are available and estimating it. It, it proves to be a lot um, more dependable that way than using something like Zillow. Right. Mm-hmm. But I always do remind people too. um, sometimes, especially if they're not in a hurry Whatever else, ask them, you know, well, you bought your house six years ago. Have you stayed in contact with the real estate agent that you're, you know, that you bought the house with? Because sometimes these people want to figure out, they'll come to us and say, I want to get pre-approved because I want to buy a house in town. I'm not really sure how much I'm going to get out of my house. So then I'll tell them, well, maybe you should contact your real estate agent. If they stayed in touch with you and you guys have a good rapport, they can do what's called a broker price opinion. Um, or a CMA, comparative market analysis, and and come up with, similarly, they're going to look at comparable homes that are listed and sold and try to come up with a price per square foot, give you a good idea. Um, so that's a good resource too. But we've, we've gotten pretty good at estimating values in order to be able to drive these things. It's always fun for me to estimate a value on a refi and then have the appraisal come in and see mm-hmm. how close I am. Um, it's really fun when you kind of hit it spot on. Sure. Know? tell somebody i think your house is going to appraise for 825 and they're like oh i was thinking closer to 700 i'm pretty sure you know here's what i did this is why i think it's 825 and they have the appraisal come in a week later for 830 you're like look at that i was right there yeah well and and i mean ultimately the appraiser is going to dictate value and you want to try to get as close to what they're going to determine um so that you don't mess up a transaction appraisers are looking for anywhere from three to six comparables to put in the report Sometimes more if it's a really difficult property, but usually, you know, maybe like four sold and two currently listed is is a typical report. So six total comparables. Um, and they're looking, you know, ideally within 90 to 180 days of, of the time frame of those being sold. Um, and then within that 20% tolerance of gross living area. 
Yeah. And then similar, you know, within ideally a one mile radius if possible, but they'll go out if needed. And then just trying to, you know, the last thing would just be similar kind of look and feel like if, if you were going to buy this, if the subject property is this Spanish style home, you know, would you also, you know, with, with relatively normal construction, would you consider a ranch style? Eh, maybe. Would you consider a, a dome home? I don't know. <laughs> would you consider a log home? I don't know. You know, there's so they'll kind of look at style too as kind of a last, sure, a last thing. Yeah, and ultimately the appraisal grid tries to uh, place numeric values on the similarities and differences between the two houses. You know, what this one's got a pool, and that one doesn't have a pool. So we got to try to put a value to what. Well, how did that impact the sales price? Mm-hmm. And that can be a little bit more tricky. Ideally, you'd have comps that all have a pool. Um, that could at be at least a, one. Yeah, you need one, right? <laughs> at least you need one. Yeah. Yeah, whenever there's a unique feature to a home, whether it's a pool or, you know, like a detached what, ADU or, or garage or, you know, something else going on on the property, you always want to see in the appraisal report one comp that shares that same unique feature. Yeah. Otherwise, you got to worry that's not normal for the area. And you know what? Some people don't want a pool. They don't want the maintenance and the hassle and the liability of having a pool, and so it's worth nothing to them. It might even be worth um, more than or less than nothing to them as they figure it's just a headache that they're going to have to figure out how to deal with. You know, we've we've helped people buy houses that they love the house, but it has a pool and they don't like it, and their plan is to fill the pool with dirt. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. But. That'd be me because, like, I'm into the working in the yard and the gardening and stuff like that. Not less pool. About, you don't want to sit by a pool with like my tie and work on that. I'd rather have that. I'd rather have that space to have more plants. I think it'd be yeah. fun to have a pool like for the kids and the social aspect yeah. of all the thing. But mm-hmm. I could also see how in ten years, when my kids are all out of the house, mm-hmm. and I'd be like, "Oh, great! Now I have this twenty thousand gallons of water out back. I got to keep yeah. putting chemicals into and pumping and heating and you know using it three days a year or something." It, that's yeah. another thing about those those shows too we were talking about earlier uh, for entertaining room for entertaining. I was like, you know what? Come over, welcome me my new house, and go home. Thank you. <laughs> so it's like well, I don't need that entertainment space. <laughs> Jim the yeah. loner. Yeah, no, not mm-hmm. really. No, but you know. <laughs> All right, we got to uh, do a commercial break here. Take some time out to thank the sponsors. We'll be back in a couple minutes with more mortgage matters. All right. Welcome back. We're back. Just taking the break here, the opportunity to just work. <laughs> it's been yeah, busy. Yeah, that's Dana's for over sure. there busily typing away yeah, on his computer. It's, it's been busy. There's not a lot of rest if you work in the mortgage world here. I saw um, the first episode of, what was, I guess, the first segment of the new Netflix series they released on Bill Gates. Mm. It's pretty interesting. I'm sorry. I don't have that information. Wow. Siri <laughs> apparently has not seen the new Bill Gates <laughs> yeah, Netflix show. Apparently not. <laughs> At the Gates Institute, they were they were kind of um, involving who looked like a gal that was responsible for maybe personal assistant type scheduling and these kind of things. So they were asking her questions and they asked, um, is, is Bill on time? And they said, 
Absolutely. To the minute, all day, every day. And they sort of ran through, well, what's a day look like for him? And he said, well, he starts in the morning with this, and then he has a Microsoft Board of Directors meeting at 1030, and then he has the the Gates Foundation committee meeting, and then he has this, and he has that, and he has this in his day. And most of those things, I was surprised it sounded like were every single day. It was like, I guess if you're on the board of Microsoft, there's probably things to discuss mm-hmm. pretty much every day. Um, but so they asked him, you know, that was when the guy said, well, is he ever late? with that arduous schedule that's every single day. And she said, absolutely not. He's down to the minute every single day. And she made the comment that time was the one resource that Bill Gates cannot buy more of. And so the time is incredibly valuable and precious. And um, he just has to manage time the same way all the rest of us do. And I was like, I'm glad for that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that Bill Gates is – Waking up in the middle of the night, panicking, sending himself emails like I do. He doesn't use his billions to buy extra minutes in the day. (laughs) Did you ever see that movie? There was a movie back in the day that was like that. It was about time and how everybody had time. You had like a bracelet that showed your Uh, time. I think I have seen You could like, like, there was people that were like stealing people's time and then you could buy more Mm. time. And it was like the wealthy people had, could almost live forever because they could afford to buy more time. Mm. Whereas like the impoverished people were like less than an hour at all, all times of the day. They were constantly just trying to figure out how to get an extra 15 minutes or something. That sounds like an episode of the twilight zone. It was pretty wild. Interesting idea. I don't think it was a great movie, but Mm. it made me think. Was it the twilight zone movie? No, no, I, I, I think I've seen that movie too, mm. but yeah, it's just... They had like bracelets on that yeah. had a clock running. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, it was like, so one of the stars of the movie was like a poor dude and he was like with his mom and they were, you know, beg borrowing and stealing time in every way they could and you just couldn't run out of time. And like this dude was like living with less than 24 hours every day as he could just barely figure out how to earn more time. So that was the thing, like you would get paid at your job in time and then you'd pay your rent in time and ride the bus with time and sell things for time. So these guys were like at the pawn shop trying to sell family heirlooms just to like not die today. I think I know what I'm going to use for a bumper coming back from the next break. (laughs) Something about time. Yeah. Crazy. Pink Floyd, clocks. Yeah, maybe well, you know, clocks or something like that. Or Steve Miller. All right, don't forget. I'm gonna hold you to it. Mm. Okay. Oh, yeah. So anyway, that was an interesting tangent. Yeah. <laughs> the point is, we're busy, but we got to use every minute we have. <laughs> yeah, and you know what's interesting too is that I I read this week that mortgage applications nationally are down ten percent. Makes sense. Got that refi burnout. Yeah, yeah. Rates popped a little bit, so yeah, the refi stuff slows down. But I saw purchase applications are remaining strong. Um, you know, so there's more evidence of that. You know what we talked about in the first hour: the strong housing side of of the industry and the buying side. Still a lot of demand, although maybe a little more balanced. There's still plenty of demand. Most of the purchase transactions that I've been getting involved with lately have some sort of contingency to them or multiple contingencies where you're trying to buy a house, but the seller wants their acceptance of your offer to be contingent upon the offer that they've got going on upstream. Mm. You know, they're buying a replacement house. And so managing the timelines and the contingencies of these things can be 
it can be overwhelming for people, but we spend a lot of time talking about these strategies about, you know, I don't doubt there are people that are listening to the show this morning that are thinking about that, you know? So if you have a house that you've owned for five years and so maybe you bought it for 400,000 and now it's worth 550 or whatever and contemplating moving up into a bigger house or something, but the down payment is in the equity. So what do you do? How do you get your money out of that and then find, you know, how to make the calendar work out such that you can put that money down on the next house? And there's there's a variety of different strategies that are used in that. Um, you know, one of the ones that I think is pretty common, I mean, other than just writing a contingent offer, um, but we'll see people do things like, you know, if, say you, you need to sell your house because you need to buy the next house. So we would have you sell your house and then into the contract, you could reserve the right to do a rent back from the new owner. So you thereby become the tenant of the property. And most every loan program would allow um, the seller to stay in possession as a tenant for up to 60 days. Once you get beyond 60 days, you start to have problems with owner occupancy and things like that. If you're the buyer wouldn't be able to qualify as a as an owner occupant because they won't be able to take occupancy within the required 60 days. Mm-hmm. So if they're buying as an investment property, some of those issues are are moot, but yeah, so so maybe what you need to do is you need to list and sell your home and get yourself a 45 day cuz you can you can dictate these terms right you can counter offer these terms so you could say i'm going to sell my house um to these people and i want a 45 day escrow or maybe even a 60 day escrow and then what i want is the ability to rent my home back from you at whatever your we call it PITI but that's your principal interest taxes insurance come up with the prorated amount and say that I'm going to rent it back from you for $65 a day or whatever it is um, at my desire for a maximum of 60 days. And this is kind of a seller's market. So if you're dictating those terms as a seller, say, well, I like your deal. You've offered me a fair price and I'm going to counter you back with just, I want a 60-day escrow and I want to be able to occupy the home for up to two months at your actual cost. And so buyer may agree to that, if, especially if they're in a living situation where they can make that calendar work. You know, Sometimes some of our move-up buyers are able to sell their house and move into a relative's house for a month or two while they find their replacement house. That's mm-hmm. not a reality for all of us. Well, and then you have to move twice sometimes, or you have to keep your stuff in storage for a while. So there's, yeah, that's less yeah, than so, ideal. So, and maybe as a seller, you could say that, well, I'm going to rent back the house, but I'll give you access to the garage. Mm-hmm. So now you can put your things in the garage or, or even other way around, I'll sell you the house and I'll give you occupancy of it, but I'd like to remain in control of the garage for 30 days so I can move my stuff into there or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so then that allows you the ability in that situation as the the guy selling his house, going to rent it back for a little while as needed to have the 60-day escrow period plus the 30 to 60 days for the escrow that they're going to get. Now they have this window of opportunity to find a replacement house. The place where that strategy gets a little bit scary, though, is that what if you don't find the suitable replacement property during that period? Right. Then you may have to settle, right? You may have to buy a house that isn't your first choice, 
but it's the only choice that's available within your budget that you could get a successful offer accepted on. Um, so you, or it buys you time to find a place to rent or something. I mean, it does at least buy you some time. I have a client right now that has been writing contingent offers for quite a while and unable to get them accepted. Keeps telling sellers, I'll buy your house and I want a 45-day escrow. And in that same period, I want the contract contingent that I could sell my house within that same 45-day period. And for a seller, if you don't have to accept that offer, if there's somebody lined up that's a first-time home buyer or a cash buyer um, or somebody that just doesn't need that consideration, it makes the contingent offer less than appealing, right? Have you told them? I mean, we do have a loan program where you can do you know, essentially a cross-collateralized loan where you do one loan over two properties and then when you do ultimately sell the home you're moving out of, then you pay that loan down and yada, yada. That's really, yes. I mean, for me, that's a short conversation because in the practical world, that's a very expensive way to approach this. It is. It is because you're Um, paying for both homes for... And you got to generally, you have a points charge and generally you have to buy two appraisals. And then generally that cross collateralized loan that goes between two property is interim financing. So they want it refinanced typically um, after, you know, you sell the first house and they want you to go do kind of takeout financing on new long-term financing. So end up having multiple. So this couple that I was talking about though, they're selling their house with the full intention of when it sells, they're planning on moving and becoming tenants. Hmm. So they're going to go find a place to rent, ideally month to month. Yeah. But they're going to find a place to rent and sit with their money in the bank until they can buy the home um, on the timeline and, you know, the fitting the criteria that they're comfortable with that, that meets all of their desires. And that's interesting. I would say that's not normal. We don't see a lot of people that are willing to go become tenants for a period of time, waiting for the perfect home to surface on the market. Um, I think more often than not, what we see is people that are able to successfully negotiate a contingent sale. And usually from the seller's side, you're going to have the seller's agent giving advice to the sellers. And especially if they intend to buy a house, contingent upon selling their home they're also a little bit more open to sell a home contingent to their buyer selling a home Mm -hmm. right and so the fact that those people are sort of all in this situation together can can create a a kind of a better environment or attitude of leniency towards that variable Um, but the the risky thing there is it becomes a, a house of dominoes here where Somebody, when three or four or five transactions depend on one another, each executing perfectly, and then one of the people up in the middle of it has a pre-approval letter from Quicken. And everyone's panicked about that, right? So you have this high level of stress. And I find that um, who your lender is also makes a pretty big difference in that, especially if your lender's local, they recognize the name. They recognize the loan officer. You know, a lot of the transactions, since we've been doing retail loans here for so long, we have so much reputation and just namesake with these different agents that they just feel more comfortable telling the seller, I'm okay. You know, I feel better about you 
evaluating and accepting this contingent offer, knowing that Central Coast Lending is the bank that's doing the loan. They have a, a good reputation and a high rate of performance. You're not going to get caught in this scenario where you've got somebody that's using, you know, some internet bank from Delaware, hoping that they got good counsel and that that pre-approval that the pre-approval letter they're holding is worth its weight. Ideally, Central Coast Lending would be doing all of those loan transactions and <laughs> can coordinate it all, and we if, do that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, if only <laughs> that takes a that takes a whole lot of uh, everybody <laughs> wanting that, you know, right. <laughs> Which is interesting. But, I mean, we we buy market share in terms of being an independent lender. Um, we lead the county in deed of trust recordings, and you know, for purchase transactions, a, a lot of the, you know, honestly, the feedback that we get from real estate agents is it it makes them more comfortable to know that the the clients in the transactions that are getting loans are using us, and I like to think that that puts our clients at an advantage when we're writing their pre-approval letter. You know, if you're the seller, say you're selling a house on Main Street and it's on the market and you get three offers in the same day and the three offers are all the same, a 20% down conventional loan from a buyer here in town and you have a pre-approval letter from three different places, if one of them is Central Coast Lending, um, I know that, that that there's some clout with that. And I like to think that that would be the deciding factor in the, that seller's desire to accept your offer as opposed to the other ones. Um, so anyhow, that that contingent type of transaction is one that people worry about and it causes a lot of stress. But with a good plan, it's definitely possible to navigate it. Um, when... When I bought and sold my house, I I tried to write a contingent offer to the seller. I said, I'd, I'd like to buy your house contingent upon selling my house. And the agent called my agent. They weren't even really willing to respond in writing and said, we're going to delete your offer, not even respond to it. And your guy is at least going to have his property listed, if not in escrow, before you circle back again. Hmm. So I listed my house and I'm Fingers crossed. I don't want to list my house and sell it and then have the house I want be gone by the time I'm ready. So it worked out for me timing-wise that I listed my house and then I got an offer. And as soon as I got an offer, I wrote my offer on my new house and said, hey, I'm ready to buy this house. And I I kind of did it. Um, I kind of was – it was an interesting approach is I didn't make it contingent upon selling my house. I used the timeline such that I could structure the length of escrow and the contingency release of the people that were buying my house ahead of the contingency release of me on the house that I was buying, um, though the transaction wasn't contractually contingent. And there's a little bit of risk there because if my buyers backed out and I didn't have a contingency in the contract, I could be sued for specific performance of the contract of buying the house. So you you have to know all of those things and how you're managing it. Um, but there's point is there's more than one way to skin that cat. Why is that a saying? Skinning cats. <laughs> I don't know. Do people but skin cats? But apparently there's more than one way to do that. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> That's alarming. I don't know. Uh, I wish I hadn't used that analogy now. I'm kind of sorry I did now that I'm picturing that. And, yeah, uh, kinda, yeah. 
That's awful. Where did that come from? I'm going to look it up during the break. We need to take a break right now because I need to do research. Otherwise, we're going to get skinned too. So Uh, somebody listening has got like kids in the backseat is like, oh, no. Yeah. Why Why are we now having to explain this? This yeah. isn't a thing, kids. No, it's not. Let's not. That's awful. Maybe it's not. Uh, maybe that's not what it means at all. I'm gonna yeah, let's go ahead and take that break. I'm going to research it and probably not talk about it after the break. <laughs> Stick around for more Mortgage Matters. Here we go. We're back. It's the home stretch. It's my favorite part of the show. Yeah, when it's almost over. <laughs> no, I like the middle too. But uh, yeah, this just means the weekend is nearly upon us. Get a, get a little bit of me time. Yeah, we got about 10 minutes here. Eight Work minutes. in the garden. What do you got planned? Yeah. Soccer. Uh, there's soccer. Um yeah, we have a little soccer today, and then um, I am actually due to do a little bit of gardening. Um, have a nice little vegetable garden that needs some attention. Good for you. Yeah. It's, my, it's what I do with my me time. There it is, see? Yeah. I love it. like to get my hands dirty. Yeah. Cut the grass. Yeah. Prune well, the my plants. My hands are fairly clean right now, but on my days off, no, not so much. Yeah. I'm out there working in the yard. Watch some football. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I like um, to be outside and listen to sports on the radio. That's something I I like to do. I I love listening to baseball games on the radio on the weekend Mm -hmm. um, as I'm doing my yard work. Yeah. Get the sun beating down on me. It feels good. All right. I'm ready to go now, too. Let's (laughs) go. Thinking of all the options I have before me. Yeah. Fantastic! Yeah, we're doing we, we're well. We're doing high school football here on Friday nights too. On oh, really? So that's really good too. Yeah, I mean, Jason and I we have a little uh, gridiron matchup this Sunday. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, fantasy football. Cool. We're opponents. I think I'm going to beat you. I mean, that's yet to be seen, but we'll find out here real soon. I suffered my first defeat this last week, Jim. Wow. I was I was undefeated, riding high. Mm-hmm. Kind of even remember bragging about it a couple wow. times. And then the fall from grace, it hurts. Mm-hmm. I uh lost to a dude that I was sure I was beating too. He was projected to have like mm-hmm. a bad week and then everyone on his team had a better than expected week. Oh. Must be referring to Mr. Mike Points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another yeah. Another favorite here on the show. A lucky, lucky guy. <laughs> Sometimes I feel guilty about fantasy football, by the way. Like I'm affecting real life for these athletes. <laughs> if I put no you on my team, yeah. so now you're posting like three points because you have like a you know a fumble or something or throwing interceptions. It's my fault. I mm. put you on my team. We were going to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Rest easy. I don't think you have any bearing on how they perform. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right about that. <clears throat> what do you have going on this weekend? Uh, throw the feet up, man. Nice. That's the goal. Good. I'm just going to try to relax. Deserve. I'm going to try is. to relax. Yeah. Uh, Got to go watch the daughter cheer. Doing cheer now. You're doing soccer. Cool. We're doing cheer. Yeah. It's very exciting. That's cool. And then, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Kind of thought about trying to get some of you old dudes together for a night of poker on Saturday night. Hey, there you go. Never know. Never <laughs> know. Um, Man. This is it. This is it. This is it. The month of September, the third quarter, is nearly over. We've got one more work day on Monday. And then the third quarter will be in the books. Um, uh, I was at Costco this week. They have Christmas trees no. standing oh, and lit. That's too early. The decorations are out. Oh, yeah, that's too early. I guess that's what that means. That That's what this time of year is. Uh, starting you know, to get ready for holidays. I, I just am having trouble believing that Tuesday brings October. It's... Yeah. Yeah. Halloween. I, in my, Thanksgiving. In my mind. Christmas. And I know, I know that school started and we're already like way back in the thick of it. But yeah. I still feel like it's like July or August or something. I can't believe that we're already days away from October. And maybe it's partially been the weather. Yeah, I don't know. Super hot this week. Yeah. Um, anyway. We yeah. even had an amazing day out in Morro Bay this week. It was hot. It was oh, turn yeah. on your air conditioner? It wasn't North County hot. Yeah, I don't have a... <laughs> we don't have those in Morro Bay. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't North County hot, but it was... For Morro Bay, it was hot. The... It yeah. was... I mean, it was nice. It's nice. I'll take it. I love the... I love the heat. Yeah. So, but yeah, in the South County, we had the same thing. Like that yeah. mid-80s heat, right? Well, uh, no... High I, 80s? I, no, I got it. My... Mine... Uh, uh, thermometer at my house got up to over 90. Oh, okay. Like, like 95. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, you're... Get, now, that's hot. Yeah. It's like a comfortable heat in Morro Bay. Oh. Uh, <clears throat> anyway i got a um just looking at this email that came in right now and probably seems like a good time to talk about it uh this gal emailed us at the general email which is info at centralcoastlending.com i thought it was hello the hello That's, works too okay. info and hello work um in fact i don't even know that she picked one of those she just clicked contact us on the website mm. and I'm I'm the recipient of those incoming emails, and so um, she said she did a loan with Seslock just uh, back in January, and she did a little bit of cash out for some home improvements, and she has a 4.375 and was concerned that because she refinanced so recently that she couldn't refinance again. And also, um, I love this question, but she said, you know, basically I understand that rates are a little bit lower and I could potentially save some money, but I, but I don't want to dig myself into a financial hole. I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. Um, I like that people are concerned about that. And I just want to remind everybody, uh, you can, Really, there's no required 
time in between refinancing, it's really, really, really important that you always evaluate the cost of the transaction versus the benefit of the savings. To make a short-sighted decision to save a little bit of money each month, but growing your loan amount wildly by exorbitant fees and going back over 30 years and those things, that that can be um, a less than great decision. And so um, I just want to remind everybody is that we're sort of in refinance fever again, you know? Like, I mean, there's some percentage of our pipeline that's people that did loans with us 12 months or less ago, mm-hmm. that it's just time to redo their loan. They're getting a significantly better interest rate and saving a lot of money. Um, that So everybody's sort of thinking about this or hearing about it. And so I just want to remind people that that's really important is to know that there isn't a required minimum amount of time. There are some guidelines that have to do with seasoning on what type of transaction you're doing. There are some things like that. doesn't affect the average person, but you need to give really careful consideration to the cost of the transaction, going back over a 30-year term if that's what's proposed, and then what your savings are. So I just want to remind everybody that if you're looking at that, you can get objective counsel with us. We want to spend the time to understand your situation. We want to get to know your objectives. We want to try to figure out whether there's a cost-benefit savings there that's worth it and in your favor. So if you want that kind of help, call us this week at 805-543-LOAN. Or find us on the web at centralcoastlending.com. Thanks much for being with us. We'll be back next week with another live episode of Mortgage Matters.